0: Hey, uh, we are on with Professor Sahar Aziz. Um, my name is Ahmed Tekeliolu. I am the editor in chief of Maidan and the Maidan podcast at the Relax really like, Center for Global Studies at George Mason University. And this is the, the first one that I am recording for Maidan podcast. Um, um, as you know, Maidan podcast has several cha- sort of you know channels, uh, and you know what we are doing today is an episode that is going to be plugged into our um, uh, 28th anniversary of 9-11 series on the Maylam. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Sahar Aziz uh, from Rutgers University Law School and the Center for Security, Race and Rights uh, and Rights at Rutgers University. Um, I'll, um, you know, welcome uh, Professor Aziz.
1: Thank you so much, Ahmed, for inviting me. It's truly an honor. I'm a big fan of your podcast.
0: All right. No, wonderful. Thank you so much. We're really grateful uh, to you for making time. Um, Our audience, you know, will know Professor Aziz from her scholarship, from her sort of on the field, you know, presence. And we'll talk about, you know, some of her uh, background, but a quick bio is um, that, you know, Professor Aziz um, is a professor of law, chancellor, social justice scholar, and Middle East and legal studies scholar at Rutgers University Law School. She is the founding director of the Rutgers Center for Security, Race and Rights. Uh, csrr.rutgers.edu is the website. And I highly encourage our audience to check the website out, which is full of wonderful resources. Um, and she, um, her scholarship is interdisciplinary and examines intersections of national security, race and civil rights with a focus on the adverse impact of national security laws and policies on racial, ethnic and religious minorities in the U.S. And she has other interests as well on Egypt, for example, intersections of terrorism, authoritarianism rule of law in Egypt, um, but also that she is the author of multiple um, articles and a recent book that's coming up, and we'll talk about the book as well, uh, called The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom, coming out from uh, the University of California press um, very soon, uh, right?
1: Yes, it will be coming out in November 2021, inshallah, so I encourage everyone to pre-order it now. It's available on the ucpress.com website and also on amazon.com and other booksellers. But yes, I'm very much looking forward to its birth.
0: Wonderful. That's that's great. That's wonderful. Um, Okay, let's jump into our conversation. Uh, Our audience is is familiar with our sort of free-flowing conversation. Uh, But I wanted to, even though I read your bio, um, I want to start off uh, with a brief introduction in terms of how you, you know, would like to tell us about your scholarship, what has shaped your scholarship uh, in the last 15, 20 years. And, um, and perhaps we can also talk about, um, you know, some of your um, your work next at the, at the Center for Security, Race and Rights at Rutgers as well.
1: Okay. Well, I am an untraditional scholar, proudly so in many ways. Uh, the first is that I am what I call a gener- first and a half generation American, or I'm technically, legally an immigrant. I was born in Cairo, but I was raised in America. So, socially and culturally, I'm a product of American society and the education system. But I was raised by Egyptian Muslim parents who were uh, born and raised in Egypt. And so, my positioning. Socially, is unique for the academy because you will not find many people who are what we call this one and a half generation—not not not first generation uh, American Mm -hmm. and not second generation America—or kind of one. We're in the middle, and that brings a perspective that is rarely brought to the academy. Uh, So that's one way that I am untraditional, and the other is that I practice law for uh, almost a decade before I entered the academy. And before then, I was a racial justice activist in my local community as a high school student, as a college student in the Dallas, Texas area in the 1990s when Mm -hmm. being racially conscious was not popular. When everyone had drank the Kool-Aid that we were colorblind and even among uh, minority communities, if you were race conscious, was considered that you were a troublemaker. Uh, this was the post-civil rights era. This was when uh, African-American communities were being vilified in the war on crime and the war on drugs. The media was uh, full of negative images and criminalization of black men in particular, but black identity in general on television. And the way that often many minority communities were responding in the nineties was to try to integrate, assimilate and work within the system. And if you were one of those people or groups who adopted more of the Malcolm X theory or approach or the black nationalist approach, or the anti-colonial approach, you were considered a, a radical in a very negative sense. And so what we're seeing today is very intriguing to someone like me who came of age in the 1990s, came of age politically and, and intellectually, because this so-called woke generation and this racially conscious uh, world that we're, we just suddenly discovered is, is not the way it's been. Uh, for the past at least 30 years in, in my lifetime of being uh, an adult. So I, I've learned to appreciate that there is a pendulum and the pendulum swings and there is always a reaction to every progress. Uh, if we do one step forward, there's a risk of two steps back, as we're seeing now with attacks on critical race theory. And so that, that's something else that I think brings a unique perspective to my scholarship and then finally i am a critical race theorist and i didn't become one two years ago when it became popular or when people actually know what it was i became a critical race theorist unofficially in the 90s just by default uh, but really understood what it meant and adopted it as a scholarly identity and academic identity when i started uh, be- teaching and becoming a professor in 2011 And the reason I adopted critical race theory as my scholarly agenda and my scholarly identity was because it made sense to me, based on what I'd seen as an immigrant who was raised in the United States, who was a religious minority, who was also an ethnic minority, but who had also um, been raised in a primarily... Uh, a largely African-American community where I witnessed firsthand anti-Black racism against many of my friends and was quite disgusted by it, where I heard uh, family members of my white friends use the N-word as if it was not a bad word, which was quite a shock for me. Uh, And so I had witnessed things as a teenager and as a college student that made it clear as day that America had a serious racism problem. But these weren't things that people were willing to talk about in "quote unquote" polite company. And I thought critical race theory was that stream of, of of theory or that that academic path that was much more honest and much more realistic about just how entrenched racism is in the United States, both explicitly and structurally, or both intentionally and you know through what we call disparate impact. And that was not popular. And I had many advisors tell me, do not identify yourself as a critical race theorist when you go on the academic market. Do not write as a critical race theorist. You'll be marginalized and you'll be stigmatized and people won't take you seriously. But my perspective, which again is unique, was that if I wasn't going to be a critical race theorist academic, then I didn't want to be an academic. It really wasn't worth it. It, What's the point? If you're not going into the academy to make interventions that are based on your analysis, the, your research in a way that uh, may challenge the status quo. Again, it depends on what you find in your research, but that isn't automatically accepting all the assumptions and premise and uh, facts that others uh, put forth, because oftentimes what is so-called mainstream is not necessarily accurate. And it is always, and that includes myself and anyone else, but all knowledge production is affected by power or lack thereof, uh, and we can't disconnect that. Right? So whatever one reads, say, about national security or whatever one reads about civil rights or Muslims, you have to understand the position of the author, the limited limitations of the author in their analysis, even if it's not intentional, even if it's not in bad faith. And that's why it's so important in the academy for us to have peer review, to have diversity of viewpoints, to have contrarian views and critical perspectives, because I think our ultimate job as academics is truth seekers. And to we have such a privileged position. And I think during the Trump era was a stark reminder for all of us who are tenured academics is you know when you had someone like Donald Trump using the most powerful uh, pulpit, right, the most powerful bully pulpit, which is the presidency of the United States, to engage in such stark and explicit racism against so many communities, Muslim communities, Black communities, Latinx communities, immigrant communities, uh, women, is when you realize how important it is to be an independent thinker and to be a free thinker and to be able to speak truth to power and not have to worry, at least in theory, about being fired, whereas that's not the case uh, in our capitalist society, where it's work at will, uh, the will of the supervisor and the employer. And that is one way to quash any type of uh, independent thought, creative thinking is to make employees always afraid that if they say something that they think is truthful, or they think is actually going to help an institution, but it isn't what the powerful want to hear or may threaten the interests of the, of the powerful, then they won't do it. And, and then you start getting decadence. So, I think that, um, you know, in a nutshell, <laughs> this, this long, somewhat long-winded introduction is to say that I, uh, I feel very um, responsible and I feel a burden of responsibility as an academic and as someone who has mm-hmm. these multiple experiences that are not commonly found in the academy. Uh, I'm probably one of only a handful of Muslim women and a handful of Muslim Arab women. And in the academy, especially in, in legal teaching, And so with that comes uh, a great burden and responsibility to make sure that at least my voice is heard and that we bring more of those identities into legal academia, because of course, not every Arab woman, not every Muslim woman, not every Arab Muslim woman has the same perspectives and the same experiences. And that's the whole point of diversity is to understand the diversity both within uh, identity groups and between different identity groups.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, no, thank you so much. This was very, very helpful. And I just wanted to ask about the the episode I was listening to a lecture by you and you're talking about your second year in law school and 9-11 happening. Um, And that's being a turning point in in some ways in your personal um, and academic life. Um, How was, you know, now looking back almost 20 years now, how does it look? How does it feel to look back at that experience as a as a law school student? You know, experiencing that.
1: I was a first year law student,
0: <laughs> in September yeah.
1: 11, 2001. Uh, and and which matters in so far as I wasn't even settled into law school yet. We'd only been in law school for two weeks. It's always a very <laughs> overwhelming experience that first semester of law school, and. I write about this in in my book, in part, in The the Racial Muslim, about how that completely changed my career trajectory. And it brought social justice and racial justice issues to a very personal level. Before then, I was more of an ally to African-American communities. The racial justice work I was working on, it was twofold. One was with my African-American friends, on racial justice issues that were very directly impacting black communities. And mm-hmm. I had the privilege right, of not having to deal with as much of that type of discrimination. And then I also worked a lot with refugees from Muslim countries, like the Kurdish refugees in particular, who had come to Dallas in large numbers in the nineties. Mm-hmm. But again, that wasn't personal. I was not a refugee. Mm-hmm. And so nine 11 brought all of that racism and all of the bigotry to you know, our home in a, in a very personal level, to our communities where me and my parents and my, fa- and my friends and my mosque community felt under siege. We felt that everyone in the country was looking at us as if we had committed some horrendous, treasonous act. We were guilty by association. We heard all sorts of extremely offensive comments made in the media by politicians, uh, by law professors. That you know, in my own university, and it was shocking because, again, you know, especially when you know there's racism, it's just different when it doesn't come home to you. It it has more of an abstract academic uh, or advocacy perspective rather than a very personal one where you literally are worried, you know, could I get arrested? Uh, Will I ever find a job? Will my mother who wears hijab get beaten in the streets? Will my parents get fired because they're Muslim? And if they do, will the legal system actually be able to protect them? Because now we would have to test it. Uh, there's all kinds of laws in writing, but as someone who also studies the developing world and authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, I'm fully aware that you could have all sorts of laws on the books that officially protect civil rights and human rights. But enforcement is where you find out if it's merely a piece of paper or actually a robust uh, legal system that supports such rights. And we had never had to test that being in the United States on a, on a personal level. So... It completely changed my career trajectory where I had gone to law school originally to work on rule of law issues and democracy and human rights in the Middle East because I had a a, a deep interest in my own heritage and and was very connected Mm -hmm. uh, to the Middle East uh, just through my own immigration experience to changing it to working on civil rights in the U.S., especially on behalf of Muslim communities. And national security was the legal and political context in which their civil rights were often violated. So that's ultimately mm-hmm. what led me down the path of being an expert mm-hmm. on the intersection of national security and civil rights, both in terms of what I did as a lawyer, especially on pro bono matters, but also uh, as an academic in my scholarship.
0: No, that that definitely makes sense. And thank you for giving us that background um i want to talk maybe later on a little bit also about your um like school board members role um that's 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 not all that common um but 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 maybe we can do that after talking a little bit more about the the center center for security race and rights at rutgers university uh what were you know some of the um What's the journey of the center? Uh, how did you establish the center? What has been its most noteworthy accomplishments, in, in in your perspective? Um, and can you tell us maybe a little bit about you know the plan for the year ahead um, for the center? Um, the the threefold sort of you know issue sort of focus at the centers is really sort of I think you know uh, creative and interesting, and I'm sure our audience would love to hear more about that as well.
1: Yeah, the Center for Security, Race, and Rights is a culmination of my 20 years. Well, at that point, we started it in 2017 at Rutgers Law School. So at that point, it was 17 years of work mm-hmm. on post-9-11 discrimination issues. And I learned many lessons in on my path because, as I mentioned, I was a first-year law student. So I had to... Uh, it was trial by fire. Right? It was learning by being thrown in the middle of the ocean and trying to learn how to protect a very tiny minority. We're talking about no more than one percent of the population uh, against systematic discrimination, immigration and uh, anti-terrorism prosecutions and surveillance and investigations in Schools, at workplaces, it, it was unfortunately all encompassing. And that doesn't mean that every single Muslim experienced it directly, but we were all uh, in anyone whose Muslim identity was known or who was presumed to be Muslim, even mistakenly like Sikh Americans, was at least indirectly impacted right, by those stereotypes. And one of the lessons, the stereotypes specifically, is that you are either an outright terrorist or that you are a potential terrorist, or that you sympathize with terrorism, either explicitly or implicitly, or that you are associated with terrorism. And then from there, there are suspicions that you're not loyal to America, that you're anti-American, that your religion is uh, cannot be reconciled with democracy, that your religion is against human rights, that your religion oppresses women. So all sorts of, there were multiple, multiple stereotypes that all intertwined together and that you would see them come out in the way that people interacted with you, uh, again, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. And one of the lessons I learned when I was you know in this 17-year path was that you've got to build institutions because for the first mm-hmm. four or five years, we were reacting. It was... One thing after the other, one crisis after the other, from when when America bombed the Taliban in Afghanistan, ultimately de facto occupied Afghanistan, and now we're seeing 2021. That was an utter failure, and I I won't go into the details of that. That would be a separate discussion, but. Every time that the US goes to war with a Muslim majority country, there are all sorts of negative media depictions. And the only prism through which American audiences, the vast majority of them don't know a Muslim personally, have never traveled to a Muslim majority country, know absolutely nothing about Islam. So if their introduction to it is through terrorism, that's their first impression. And not only is it an introduction, but it's repeated over and over and over again through the media because all of the focus is on the war on terror, the war in Afghanistan, and the only Muslims they've seen now are the Taliban, Osama Bin Laden, Al Qaeda. And that is the equivalent of introducing the world to America by only showing them the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, the Ku Klux Klan exists. Yes, white supremacists exist. But anyone who's lived in America knows that they do not represent the entire country. And yes, there may be Ku Klux Klan members in our government, but they're probably a minority. I'm pretty confident they're a minority. Uh, And that wouldn't be a fair depiction of the country. Although, of course, we have to take into account that that's a reality in American society, that there is anti-Black racism, but it doesn't all come through the form of uh, the Ku Klux Klan. I'm just giving that as as an example. So, when all you see is the Taliban, Osama bin Laden, and Al Qaeda, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. Of course, they exist. And it doesn't mean that they don't have followers. But there's no perspective, no context given that, in fact, we're talking about 1%, maybe less than 1%, even. And you were talking about 1.5 billion Muslims worldwide, and there's a war, and there's a conflict, and we used to arm Osama bin Laden. He was actually an ally. You know, we could go on and on about how complicated the war in Afghanistan. Uh, was. And then we go into Iraq, where we discovered very recently that afterwards that Bush lied to the American people. And in fact, there was no lawful basis for invading Iraq. It was an unlawful war by international law standards, by the law of war standards. And yet, how could he justify it to his people in terms of the trillions of dollars that would be spent in terms of American soldiers being killed and and dying in battle, he and his administration had to make Iraqis and Muslims writ large into demons, right? He had to make them into monsters. And he had to scare his population into accepting what was otherwise a completely illegitimate war, especially by legal from a legal basis, and also I think from a political basis. And again, we've seen the outcome of of that failed attempt uh, at least apparently you know whatever it is he declared he was trying to do that's for a different uh conversation but all of that connects to how muslims were treated in the us because the, the american public that wasn't muslim didn't have any other source of information but that very few people actually went and studied arabic or actually traveled or did a degree in Middle East studies, or even took a class in high school about the Middle East. I mean, that's another big gap we have in our education system is America is it's very isolationist and we don't learn about other cultures. We don't learn other languages uh, beyond the minimum. Uh, So what we were doing the first five years was just playing um, defensive and we had to respond to all sorts of crises. And then it started to shift into litigation. So there was a lot of maybe grassroots advocacy and, and trying to just protect people from being uh, deported, from being uh, investigated or, or charged or um, bullied to more active litigation. But still, there were not very many institutions that would be able to sustain that kind of work. And what we realized around, and I say we meaning there was a large growing number every year would grow of Muslim Americans who were either by choice or by necessity uh, becoming civil rights advocates in one way or the other, because we were just also deeply impacted. I was one of the first in the group only because I was a law student And there was a dearth of lawyers in Muslim American communities in America for cultural reasons, because oftentimes, at least those who were immigrating from South Asia and from the Middle East and North Africa, it's considered more prestigious culturally to be a doctor or an engineer or to be a a business owner. And law just was not a, a degree or a career path from their countries of origin that was considered high status. And so they were not encouraging their children to become lawyers. Uh, that's one reason. There are other reasons, such as language uh, and and lack of of networks. But the point being is that there were very few Muslims, much less Muslim students, in two thousand and one. And so, by just by necessity, you end up becoming one of those those few numbers. I'm very happy now and very proud to see larger numbers of Muslims from you know various races and ethnicities, who are uh, uh, lawyers in um, you know American lawyers. But what we discovered was that if the if we didn't have institutions then it would always be reactionary and it would not be strategic it would not be forward thinking and the non-muslim institutions that were assisting muslims in defending their civil rights which was quite courageous because it was not popular at the time organizations like the ACLU like the Center for Constitutional Rights uh like uh the um, Anti, Well, the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee, which was an institution, at least for Arab Americans, but there really weren't that many. And then there were some local organizations, the immigrant rights organizations were certainly uh, very helpful, but none of them focused exclusively on our communities. And so if a particular crisis ended or subsided from the national agenda, then we didn't really have anyone that would look out for our rights. And so one of the positive developments was that new organizations were created and uh, Muslim Advocates was one of them. Um, there was other organizations like SALDEF and the South Asian Legal Defense and Education Fund. There was SALT, the South Asians leading together. There were, I mean, there were multiple organizations that were created and all of that. These were new organizations created by very young people in their 20s and 30s. And so the Center for Security Rights is just one within this larger, and there's also the Muslim Anti-Racism Coalition, Muslim ARC, which focuses on a very important issue of anti-Black racism within Muslim communities, right, and the intersectional identities. So the Center for, the Center for Security, Race, and Rights is really just one of this larger ecosystem of institutions that is, I think, a positive byproduct of post-9-11 discrimination. And that is the institutionalization of civil rights groups that focus only on, well, not only, but primarily on Muslim civil and human rights uh, in the U.S. and then connecting that with international developments, because for better or worse, we as Muslims, even African-American Muslims, not just those who are immigrants or direct, you know, recent children of immigrants, are affected by these negative stereotypes.
0: And, and the, the center is sort of, like, receives support from Rutgers, but as well as, you know, from the community and, and those outside. And um, I don't know if, if you, um, like, you know, navigate the, the grants landscape and, and other things. Um, what is this institutional um, sort of uh, plan, you know, for, for years ahead, and, and especially this year uh, in regards to 9-11 and marking its, its anniversary? I think you were part of, like you mentioned in the beginning, a uh, conversation on the critical race theory uh, recently, which, which was very um, interesting. I unfortunately uh, couldn't attend. Um, but what is the center's focus this year? And how can folks support the center?
1: Well, first I will tell you that we are primarily donor supported. We are fortunate to have mm-hmm. some support from Rutgers uh, University in Newark. We're very fortunate to have a very progressive uh, Chancellor Nancy Cantor, who I'm a big fan of. <laughs> so I, I, mm-hmm. she definitely deserves credit because not all chancellors and not high-level administrators would, would allow such a center to exist uh, because we've certainly had our share of hate mail. Uh, but that mm-hmm. comes with the territory. I call it an occupational hazard. And you can't do civil rights and you can't do critical race theory if you don't have a thick skin and if you're not a fighter and if you're not ready to upset people. Right? and mm-hmm. and that is just something you have to accept uh, and as long as you do it in good faith and you do it in you know attempting to make the world a better place uh, but powerful people do not like to be told that they are wrong and they don't they certainly don't want changes in the system that will decrease their power or wealth in any way and that's a universal <laughs> phenomenon not just mm-hmm. in the United States so yeah. I just say that to also say that we You know, I use this time to make a pitch. If you want to support the center, please go to our website, csrr.rudgers.edu. We have a donate page and we prefer and want to be uh, funded by private donors. So that is Mm -hmm. always an option from now and in the future. With regard to our plan, so we have three different themes, which one can find on the website, which is the color of religion, criminalizing Muslim identity, and transnational rights and security. Those are our three major themes the color of religion is effectively the intersection of race and religion. It tends to happen, like what we call the civil sphere in law. There's the civil and there's the criminal sphere. And the civil sphere tends to be in schools, in workplaces, uh, in public squares, such as hate crimes. And anytime you have religious freedom being uh, threatened by private actors and sometimes state actors as well. Mm hmm. And we had a lecture series on the color of religion last year and that all of our lecture series are available on our YouTube channel. So if anybody wants to YouTube, wants to search uh, the center's name on YouTube, you'll find it or you go to our website and there's a YouTube button. And last year we did a lecture series on transnational rights and security where we intentionally wanted to highlight Uh, events and history and politics that were happening in Muslim majority countries, especially as they connected to U.S. foreign policy or U.S. engagement uh, or intervention, whether it was military or diplomatic, uh, to show how those events abroad affect the civil and human rights of of Muslims uh, in the United States. And again, that's all we had authors such as Professor Khaled Beydoun, Professor Asla Bali, Professor Shireen Razak. Uh, we, we were very fortunate to have had kind of an all-star lineup in all of our guest lectures, uh, excuse me, in all of our lecture series. And we also intentionally invite experts who bring the perspectives, whether you know, based on their research, of... Muslim, Arab, South Asian, African American, Muslim uh, perspectives, right? Because oftentimes those are the perspectives that are not included in the mainstream media. And those are the perspectives Mm -hmm. that are ignored in the U.S. State Department and in the Department of Homeland Security. And they lead to bad policy and they lead to loss of life, loss of American life, loss of life of people abroad and loss of trillions of dollars, right? Loss of treasure. And this is a point that people seem in the U.S. still can't seem to understand. They, they see diversity only in terms of the equitable uh, justification, which is a, certainly an important one. But it's also a very practical, uh, there's also a practical justification, especially when you're dealing with foreign policy. And so mm-hmm. I think the U.S. government has excluded the perspectives and expertise of those who bring, you know, the this analysis of those who are not simply in a bubble of Ivy League, primarily white upper middle class America. They they only when you only have this group think, you're going to have bad foreign policy. You need people who actually understand the cultures, have lived there, understand the languages, and can ensure that foreign policy doesn't wreak havoc as it has in Afghanistan and, and also in Iraq, although not as bad as Afghanistan. Um, so this year, our the theme is de-securitizing Muslim identity. And that's where we're going to be focusing more on that second prong, the criminalizing Muslim identity, because that is effectively, in a nutshell, what's happened in the last 20 years, is there has been a criminalization of Muslim identity. Now, with African American Muslims, they have been criminalized at least until the early twenty, since the early twentieth century, through the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali. Uh, I mean, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was targeted the Muslim, the Nation of Islam, very explicitly, and they were part of the COINTELPRO dragnet, which was intended to quash any kind of political dissent, especially during the Cold War. Era, so it's important to note that African American Muslims have always faced the criminalization, both from anti-black racism, but also from anti-black Muslim racism. Right, that Muslim African American Muslims were particularly especially dangerous, and it was not a coincidence, in my opinion, and based on my research, uh, that. They were never, the government was never going to integrate or incorporate a Malcolm X into the civil rights agenda, whereas Martin Luther King, because he was a Christian and because he was able to appeal to many white Americans through their own religion, right? Their own indigenous religion of Protestantism, that was something that is uh relevant and, and noteworthy, and I think under-researched under in the literature. So this year we're doing the desecuritizing Muslim Identity Series to try to break down those stereotypes, to try to disconnect Muslims from only the security paradigm. And mm-hmm. we have three uh, speakers this fall. We have more lined up for the spring, which have not yet been revealed. But we have Dr. Abdullah Naim, Naim, who will be talking about co- post-colonial legality and human rights, We'll, we're talking with Professor Julianne Hammer, who will be talking about her book about domestic violence in American Muslim communities. And then we have Professor Shereen Razak, who will be speaking about her latest article, academic article on white, uh, ex- white supremacist terrorism or, or political violence by white supremacists and the double standards between how the government treats these far right-wing extremists and how it treats so-called Muslim extremists. Because racialized criminal justice system is as American as apple pie. The only difference is how particular communities are racialized. But unfortunately, America, the American legal system is not colorblind because it's a product of the culture and the society. And the society is not colorblind. So those who enforce the law, those who write the law, those who interpret the law are simply not colorblind. Uh, And whether it's intentional or implicit. And as a result, we have to be critical and we have to really look underneath what seems to be facially neutral laws to see how in practice they're far from facially neutral. And the -hmm. January 6th insurgency and the siege on the U.S. Capitol was uh, exhibit a of how you can have uh, lo- thousands, tens of thousands of right-wing white extremism extremists organizing in plain sight on social media and via telephone and via other forms of communication. And they were not stopped yet. If a Muslim mm-hmm. just posts, a video about ISIS or supporting ISIS, they're immediately targeted for a sting operation and ultimately usually entrapped in some fake terrorist plot and imprisoned. And doesn't matter if there were free speech rights implicated. It doesn't matter if this person may have been mentally ill or maybe the Muslim, usually a young man, was completely inept and was just an armchair extremist who was offensive but, har- but harmless in terms of his ability to do anything other than post-offensive speech that then could be usually was taken down anyway, and accounts were closed by Facebook. And yet these right-wing extremists could plan in plain sight an insurgency on the US Capitol, which I can't think of anything more treasonous than that and more threat to national security than that. And so then again, that's Evidence right there of racialized criminal justice. And then the next question is are they facing the same criminal charges as the Muslims are? Are they facing the same sentencing? Is their crime taken as seriously? And you can take that even farther and compare it with how African Americans have been treated by the criminal justice system and their communities have been completely um, devastated mm-hmm. by the war on drugs, for example. And just now, are we decriminalizing marijuana, which was the pretext through which police officers and police departments were jailing hundreds of thousands of of black men and destroying their families, destroying their lives. Uh, So these are very real social systemic racial problems that have been going on for decades. And yet you have Americans primarily, you know, far right uh, white Americans who are, completely appalled by the fact that now this has become part of the mainstream conversation that we're ha- we're talking about facts now about systemic racism, and they see that in the most perverse way as anti-white racist, which I find to be a laughable proposition, because if you <laughs> for it to, for, mm-hmm. for anti-black racism to be anti-white, you would then have to show that those who have power, those who exercise power, uh, are in fact doing it in a way to harm whites. And you would see that by not seeing white people as CEOs. You would see that as not seeing white people among the wealthiest in the country, if not the world. You would see that by not seeing white people in other positions of power, as professors, as deans, as presidents of universities. You would see that as whites being disproportionately represented among the poor and among those in jail and all of the other harms that come from discrimination. And that is not what we see in American society. So this whole claim that critical race theory or racial justice is anti-white is a red herring and it's made in bad faith. And it's not based on the facts, it's based on people who are afraid to not have dominance and privilege that isn't necessarily earned in, in a society that has made blacks and browns and immigrants and Muslims pay the price for those privileges. And I think that if we're serious about equality and if we're th- serious about democracy, we need to fix these structures so that uh, it really is about individual effort and individual responsibility. And it's not about your immutable characteristic or your identity that you, your religious identity, which you should absolutely never have to change and you should not be punished for. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done in American society. Uh, but you know, the, the start is you have to first understand the problem, acknowledge the problem, question it argue, debate, and have these open forums, which hopefully is what we're trying to do with the Center for Security, Race and Rights.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And once again, um, I I highly encourage everyone listening to us to check out the resources um, section of the the webpage as well, uh, which is full of multimedia and and other sort of uh, resources, which has been really a great sort of both teaching tool uh, and also you know full of references and, and other uh, resources um, for um, for all of us uh, who are working on on different aspects of of this um, so this has been a wonderful conversation when, you know we also you know uh, wanna um, ask you uh, professor Aziz, some of our um, uh, some of the questions uh, that we are addressing in our round table on uh, on 911 so I'll, I'll move to some of those. Um, and I think, you know, you have been, you have you've addressed some of these. So, you know, if you need to skip some, uh, feel free to do so. Um, but one question quickly, what has been the most consequential impact of 9-11 for your field of study?
1: The most consequential impact for legal studies has been that Muslims are now a permanent part of the civil rights agenda. For all of the wrong reasons, but I think that's a positive silver lining because before 9-11, Muslims and Arabs and South Asians and African-American Muslims were invisible in the civil rights conversation. It, It was one, it would be a rarity that you would find people connecting the dots between what's happening to African-American communities with what's happening to uh, South Asian uh, Muslim communities, and even connecting the dots between African-American Christian and African-American Muslim communities. Mm -hmm. And now, because of all of these harmful government policies and practices and entrenchment of Islamophobic and anti-Muslim stereotypes, the, and the Muslim ban, I think, was a major turning point and a major wake up call for the U.S. And I want to take a moment just to emphasize one of the impacts of the Muslim ban that people who weren't in the trenches like me and, and many others uh, who have been working on post-alarm discrimination may not have realized is that from 2001 until 2017 of January, The common response to our advocacy was, that's too bad, it's an anomaly, or that's too bad, but it's not as serious as you're claiming it is, or that's too bad, but it's not as bad as what's happening to African-American non-Muslim communities or what's happening to Latinx communities. And and that was the general, either explicitly articulated response or just kind of the general tone. And they would help when there was a particular crisis, but in general, it wasn't seen as part of America's racial problem. And when Trump issued that Muslim ban and explicitly said, I don't want any Muslims here, we don't want them, they are bad people, they are anti-American, they are disloyal, and he had ran on that platform in 2015 and 2016, and not surprisingly, then we saw a huge uptick in hate crimes and violence Discrimination against Muslims in 2015, 2016, and I would recommend your audience to the Bridge Initiative, uh, hosted by Georgetown University and also by uh, John, Dr. John Esposito, who I'm a big fan of and, and I have much respect for his work. And if anyone hasn't read his work, I would highly recommend it. And I was very honored to have Dr. Esposito write the foreword to the Racial Muslim book. So that you know, the Bridge Initiative is 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 sets a precedent, I think, even for my center and other centers. But that being said, what the Muslim ban did was it announced to the entire country that Muslim anti Muslim racism and Islamophobia is entrenched. It is official US policy. Now, those of us working on these issues already knew that because we've seen it with the NC, the National Security Entry and Exit Registration System, which was a special registration system for Muslims. And for those who want to know more, I wrote a book, excuse me, I wrote a law review article called A Muslim Registry Colon, the Precursor to Internment? Which you can find on my SSRN.com uh, page, which is Social Science Research Network. And I wrote that article because uh, special registration programs are actually legal in immigration law. And they can be based on ethnicity, which has been used as, or national origin, which has been used as a proxy for religion against Muslims. And a lot of Muslims don't know that, or excuse me, a lot of Americans don't know that. And because there had actually been many people, and if you go back and look at the media in 2001, 2002, there had been elected officials who were calling for the internment of Muslims. And I distinctly remember that because that frightened me and it, and it, act, it prompted me to learn and study about Japanese internment, because I didn't learn about Japanese internment in American schools. I didn't learn about it in college. And so then I went and started learning about it uh, and under started to see these very frightening parallels. Um, So so now we're in 2021 and four years after Trump and 20 years right after 9-11 is, I think that's the biggest change is that if you're going to hold a conference or a panel, or if you're going to write a book, or if you're going to Address civil rights issues in the US, uh, you would be incomplete and you would not be, um, you would be missing a major civil rights issue if you didn't at least uh, bring in that perspective in the analysis of anti Muslim racism. And I I very much wish that was not the case, Um, but it is, I expect that my children and my children's children will continue to have to face this entrenched form of racism, and it will be a real challenge to try to end it. But I don't think it's going to end without cross-racial coalitions, because the root causes of Islamophobia are very similar to the root causes of anti-Latinx racism and anti-Black racism and, you know, anti-Semitism. They come from uh, a deep level of ignorance and uh, lack of education in our public school system they come from a failure for uh, of, a, of a provincial isolationist mentality that we have in this american exceptionalism that we think we're better than everyone else we think that we make no mistakes and we think that everyone is inferior to us across the world especially in non-europe you know in the global south and global east and uh, i mean that has been devastating for our foreign policy and also has made us imperialistic but it's also really been devastating for our own society, which cannot afford to have that level of ignorance uh, that produces bias and prejudice because we're so diverse. Like of all countries in the world, the United States should mandate that children are learning a second language from kindergarten. They should have a third language by high school, that they should study abroad, that they should, uh, everyone should have a passport. We are a highly diverse society. We should embrace that. We should own it. We should be proud of it. But instead, what we do is we forcibly, coercively pressure immigrants to assimilate into a white Protestant normativity that is based on an era in America in the 1700s when the country was racist in you know, even worse ways than it is now where African-Americans were or enslaved Africans were not even treated as humans by law and most certainly not by society. And uh, when all land-owning people were white and male and wealthy. So those are not the norms that should be dictating the 21st century United States that in 20, 30 years from now, by like 2050, will not have a majority race. We will not have no race no ethnicity no national origin will dominate uh in terms of of majority and so if we don't learn to become more tolerant and more accepting of different cultures and embrace different languages and cultures and become more worldly as a people i i worry about how that's going to affect our society
0: yeah no absolutely and um and i think you know that's that's definitely in the minds of many who are uh, both in academia and other uh, places you know navigating um, this year um, the next question very quickly that i wanted to ask um, is what are some field shaping works you know this can be a book article reports film or documentary that you think influenced your subfield in the post 9 11 era
1: Well, I will, because I'm a critical race theorist, I tend to, uh, I'll be focusing more on that uh, particular area, but I think Derek Bell, I did not have the privilege of meeting him. He was an African-American law professor at Harvard who uh, resigned and since we refused, walked away from his tenure position because they refused to hire an African-American woman on the tenure track at Harvard Law School. And ultimately, he ended up teaching at NYU Law School, not in a tenured position. And so his work on critical race theory, he's essentially one of the major founders, influenced me quite a bit. And I would highly recommend that people, uh, it's not even a one particular book, it's just all of his work. And he was not popular. And he said things that people thought were outrageous. And now he's, you know, after his death, is now... Seen as a brilliant man who, who who saw what others didn't see, it during his time,
0: um, and I think you reference him quite often in, in like the, the racial hierarchy sort of concept and and all of that, right?
1: Yes, and so he, mm-hmm. he and I talk about that in the racial Muslim, and I adopt that as mm-hmm. as one of my kind of underlying theoretical uh, theme structures is that uh, the black white paradigm is the curse of American society, right? That you have Blacks permanently at the bottom and Whites permanently at the top, and then you have different other groups who are put into the system, into this hierarchy where oftentimes they're competing to try to get as close to Whiteness as possible and as far away from Blackness as possible. And that then creates all sorts of interminority conflict. It also creates different forms of identity performance where people within a particular group want to be as white looking as possible, where white looking people are more beautiful and dark people, darker skinned or dark looking, you know, blacker looking people or African looking people are considered unattractive or are inferior. And this is actually a global phenomenon. I think we all, those of us who are familiar with uh, the colonial era is, this isn't just in the U.S. I mean, this is part of that broader white supremacy system, and 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 people think when you say white supremacy that you're only talking about the Ku Klux Klan, but that's not what we're. That's one extreme branch of white supremacy, but white supremacy is what it's what it says it is. It is the presumption that white people are superior in beauty, in intellectual ability, in physical ability, in you know, whatever skill, and. Even if that's not stated, it's presumed. And then the farther away you are from that, then the the less, uh, the, the more inferior presumed. And now I also, as a quick race series, have to put out the most important uh, theoretical point, which is that race is socially constructed. So we decide what white is as a society. We socially construct it. We decide what black is. Our society in America decided that if you had one drop of black blood, you were black, regardless of what you looked like. And that was for many reasons, one of which was economic, because if you had one drop of black blood, you were then enslaved you know, during slavery. And at a time when white men were actively raping their black female slaves in order to produce more slaves, because each slave was worth a lot of money, and especially after the, the slave trade was banned in the U.S., where there were no more slaves that could be imported, there was even more pressure on slave owners to uh, force their female s- slaves to reproduce. And rape was one means that they did it. There were other reasons why they raped them, obviously, but, uh, but this is a socially constructed concept, one drop of black blood. Uh, is it makes you black same thing with whiteness there was a and i talk a lot about this in the racial muslim when racism crushes religious freedom i dedicate uh, three chapters to how jews catholics and mormons were discriminated against at the turn of the 20th century up at least you know looking at the late 1800s all up until 1924 when our immigration laws uh it effectively stopped immigration from eastern southern and southern europe because White Protestant Americans didn't want any more Jews, and they didn't want any more Catholics, most of whom were Eastern European or Italian. And the reason was because they didn't consider them white. They were white by law, because as compared to Asians, they were still white. But socially, they were not treated white, or They weren't given the full privileges of whiteness, in large part on account of their religion, not being Protestant. And then to some extent also, because they were immigrants and had different languages and had different cultures, which were not English, right? So again, whiteness is socially constructed. Blackness is socially constructed. And um, so I would, I would recommend, all that is to say, I would recommend Derek Bell's work. There are other authors, you know, rather than recommend books, I think I'd rather recommend authors because oftentimes mm-hmm. they produce multiple <laughs> great works. I would recommend uh, Cheryl Harris, who in her very famous article, Whiteness is Property is certainly worth the read. She's also written other great uh, pieces, but that affected my scholarship. I would um, recommend Devin Carbato, uh, who he wrote a book. He's written a lot on identity performance. And in fact, his book, Acting White, inspired me to write my article called Coercive Assimilationism Colon the Perils. Of Muslim women's identity performance in the workplace, and that really talks about how all of these stereotypes affect how you perform your identity in ways to try to offset those stereotypes. So, for example, Muslim women are often stereotyped as meek and weak and oppressed, not as highly educated as their male uh, partners or their male, uh, you know, their brothers or family members. And so oftentimes that puts pressure on you to try to prove that you are smart, that you are competent and that you're not oppressed and that you are a leader. But then when you do that, you run up against stereotypes of women who are strong and assertive and confident as being bitches, excuse my language, but that is the stereotype. And so Mm -hmm. what do you do in the workplace when you want to not for people to believe that you are not oppressed and they are not meek? And you don't need to be saved. But at the same time, you're dealing with the stereotype that uh, women who are strong and smart and assertive are not desirable in the workplace. And they tend to be punished instead of promoted. And that's the complete opposite of, of men, and particularly white men, but even non-white men. So that, Devin Carvato is, is is someone that I would recommend. Uh, Khalid mm-hmm. Beydoun and I were, were uh, in the same cohort. We started uh, the Academy together are both critical race theorists who, who look at Muslim mm-hmm. Arab South Asians, but I would recommend uh, his work as well. He's done some great stuff on um, African-American Muslims. Antebellum Islam is a, is a great article that I've enjoyed or I've benefited greatly from. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Angela Nwachi Willig, who is now the dean at Boston University law school. She's she's written some very good work, especially on employment discrimination and race. And she wrote with Mario Barnes an article on um, how Muslim names or how names on resumes produce stereotype or cause people not to get interviewed. And there had been a lot of work on African American sounding names, whatever was stereotypically African American, like the name Kikisha or Jamal was presumed by people that that was a black applicant. So there have been studies showing that those people weren't even getting interviews. and so she did some a piece about Muslim names and Arab names, which was really beneficial. Mm-hmm. so i I could go on and on, but i would I would recommend the critical race theorists um, yeah. that that have published work. And just lastly is our mm-hmm. social media. R-U-C-S-R-R, we often tweet the work of critical race theorists so if you follow us, you'll see many recommendations of critical race theorists' uh, work and, mm-hmm. and that's also a great resource.
0: No, Wonderful and um, for our audience, we are in the process of getting transcriptions of these podcasts um, put down, um, prepared uh, so we'll be sure to to link to some of these scholars that you have Uh, noted. Um, We are coming to the end of our time, but I wanted to also, you know, ask you what have been some gaps in scholarship and, you know, what have been maybe some works that have not received the attention that they deserve?
1: So one major gap in scholarship has been looking at the intersection of race and religion. Oftentimes, race studies, whether they're in law or whether they're in social science or American studies uh, or political science, tend to be in their own silo, in their own world. And then religious studies tend to be in their own world. And while there is discussion among race studies of those who focus on different racial groups, and same with religious studies, those who focus on different religious groups, you don't see those two groups coming together frequently enough. And when you're researching Muslims in America, you're dealing directly with both types of uh, bigotry. And you can't talk about civil rights of Muslims without talking about religious freedom, but you also can't talk about it, talk about them or research them without looking at uh, anti-racism, racial right? So in fact, that's why I wrote my book, The Racial Muslim, is because I couldn't find the book I wanted to read. So I followed Toni Morrison's famous advice, which is write the book that you uh, that you want to read and that isn't there. And so that's something that I hope there will be more um, scholarship on. And I, I certainly hope that my book will also help trigger some of those conversations. Um, I think the other gap which is starting to be filled is the work on anti—on uh, me—on African-American Muslims. And so we have Edward Curtis IV has written on it. We have Marjorie Aziza Hill, who's an advocate, uh, who's been doing more advocacy on it. Uh, we have Sherman Jackson, who's written about African-American Muslims. Um, Sylvia Chan-Malik has written. Uh, there's there's a growing number of experts, scholars. It's still not enough, but there is starting to become more scholarship on African-American Muslims. And then how that connects, how it's the same, how it's different from those who who arrived in the U.S., uh, uh, as immigrants or who their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents arrived as immigrants. Uh, the other, the final gap, I think, which has been written about, but I think warrants more attention and maybe revisiting is uh, how Arabs are raised as white. There's been some great work. So I wrote on it in my book, Khed weren't written on it. Ian Hanny Lopez wrote a great book called White by Law, which includes uh, why Arabs, Some history of why Middle Easterners, North Africans are white on the U.S. census, which means we do not get counted in any kind of diversity initiatives or diversity programs. We are, on paper, treated as if we are from England right? or we are from Germany originally, when that is not our experience in the United States. And there needs to be more research on that because there was an effort to change that on the U.S. Census to make Middle East, North African and ethnic groups similar to Hispanic, at least for purposes of identifying those people and recognizing that they're, they don't have the same experiences and that it's, they're completely then uh, denied any kind of funding or any kind of programmatic work by the U.S. government or, or universities or any, any groups that, that want to look at diversity. And so the more research that can be done about why that's inaccurate, because again, race is a social construct, so we have to ask ourselves, well, what's the point of having race and and at least in in my perspective, as long as people are treated differently on account of their race, which they are, uh then we have to be accurate in identifying those relatively common or different experiences within groups, and Middle East North Africans simply are not treated the same way in society as someone whose origins are German or Swedish or English. Um, so that's, I I think that would be kind of the, the last area. And then finally, which again, which is what the center works on center for security, race and rights is more research on Muslims. That's not through the security lens research that humanizes Muslims. There are Muslims are a diverse community racially, ethnically, socially from class, from age, and there needs to be more research on the communities. Through just mundane mental health, marriage, schooling, uh, poverty—you know, things that are not related to uh, or success, right? All forms of indicia of success, science, technology, but things that are not related to security. And I will put a plug in for the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, which I'm a proud uh, fellow of. Uh, They've been slowly working on that. But again, there needs to be more work and it would be ideal that it's also from academics, not just from uh, independent institutions or think tanks. But, But I think we're headed in the right direction in terms of having more of conversations like what we're having today having more books written, having uh, centers like mine uh, being created, and hopefully there will be more and there'll be an expansion of those that are existing. And and finally, I just hope that those in the audience who are not Muslim, who are not Arab, who are not South Asian, that you will take it on yourself to learn, to educate yourself. I think the worst thing you can do is rely on the media uh, or rely on hearsay or rumors or stereotypes and it is a lot of work. And I say that to myself and to my children about cultures uh, and parts of the world that I'm very unfamiliar with. And I have to take it on myself to learn. I cannot depend on the U.S. government. I cannot depend on the public education system or the media. And and that, I think, is time well spent.
0: Absolutely. No, thank you so much for uh, for that. I think that, that perspective was, was really helpful. Um, Professor Aziz, we are at the end of our time and I want to finish with this question. Um, What are themes that you think will be perhaps more prominent than others in the coming, say two uh, decades in the next 10, 20 years? Uh, How do you see your field evolving?
1: I think two main changes I predict. So the first one is that America has made a pivot East, and China is going to be the big boogeyman, and the U.S. government is going to just as it did during the Cold War vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, just as it did in the 1990s until about now, uh, it made the Middle East and Muslims the boogeyman. It will now be the it'll be China and people of Chinese origin and people of East Asian origin, because oftentimes Americans do not know or care to know the difference between people who are whose origins are from Japan or China or Indonesia or the Philippines or you know the, the Vietnam or Vietnam or any other uh, of the many far east countries and that is going to be something that we should get ahead of as critical race theorists as civil rights scholars and social justice scholars because that we already saw just a little bit a sneak peek of it during the covid virus uh, during the pandemic and when Donald Trump intentionally called it the Wuhan virus, and the Chinese virus. And he was not, you know, he was doing that on purpose. And as a result, we saw anti-Asian hate crimes rise. So unfortunately, I think that is in the horizon for the next decade or two. And it will be, again, a product of international geopolitics. The second issue that is going to be a real challenge, and I don't think enough people are paying attention to, is the competition between minorities for power and uh, right now, the way in which advocacy and cross-racial advocacy has occurred is between various minority communities vis-a-vis uh, and white establishment. And that makes sense because, factually, white communities writ large control many aspects of American society. And they are rep- overrepresented in many positions of power and wealth But as America diversifies, as we have no majority race, and as these efforts to have more racial and ethnic minorities in positions of power, which I support because that's more representative of society, we will then start having inter-minority competition in ways that may be quite racist against various groups. And we need to be cognizant of that. We need to understand that uh, racism and prejudice is in the air we breathe. We can be prejudiced against people of our own group. We can be self-loathing in ways we don't even realize. We can, you know, I, I wrote a book called the I wrote an article called the Alpha Female and the Sinister Seven, and uh, excuse me, it's a book chapter and presumed incompetent two, which I highly recommend for female academics because it's about the challenges that women academics in all fields, not just law, face in the academy. But in that chapter, the Alpha Female and the Sinister Seven, I talk about the the topology of of the patriarchal female. And there are many women who are quite patriarchal and they don't even realize it, or maybe they do, but as long as they benefit from it, then they will continue to treat other women uh, in ways that perpetuates patriarchy. So minorities can do that too when the system itself is racist or the system itself is Islamophobic. And just as the government will look for those native informants or will look for those tokens, to, to be the legitimizing face of an otherwise um, discriminatory system against that, the identity group of the token, that phenomenon continues, but I worry it may get worse as we diversify. So I, I think that's another area that warrants more research because we, we just don't want to research it as a reaction to a problem. We want to research it in anticipation of that problem.
0: Indeed, Uh, indeed. Thank you so, so much for all of this. There were a few additional things that I wanted to talk, but I think it's better to to leave those for perhaps a future conversation and also hopefully a contribution to Maidan from you when the book comes out in November. Uh, Professor Aziz, thank you so, so much for this wonderful conversation on on law, on security, on, on 9-11, on Muslim identity. I think we covered such important themes and, and you've been so generous with your time. I uh, really appreciate you joining the Maidan podcast. Um, the, our URL is themaidan.com slash podcast. And we um, will hope to talk to you soon again and, and really grateful for your scholarship, for all your work. Uh, And your time um, for us today.
1: Thank you so much, Ahmed, and I look forward to continuing to support the Maidan podcast. And I thank your listeners and encourage everyone to pre-order your racial, the racial Muslim today, and please join our newsletter uh, for the Center for Security, Race, and Rights. And I hope that uh, this is not the last time that you and I engage. Uh, Inshallah, we will continue to uh, enlighten people with knowledge and be truth seekers.
0: Inshallah, no, thank you so much once again for for all of this.